Weirdly enough, though, uh, wild elephants do not typically attack uh, kunkies or their mahouts. Uh, they're not really sure. No one's really determined why this is. Maybe they kind of just like, you know, see an elephant and they trust them. Um, you know, no one's quite sure. Uh, the This method also can work because elephants do not have good eyesight. Uh, so if you disguise their scent and smell, like you throw some mud on you or something or other, then you can uh, relatively easily sneak up to a herd of elephants. Uh, there's also the crowl method, which is when you drive elephants into a crowd you can't escape from. Kind of think fish trap, you know, elephants can get in, but they can't get out. And then, um, now once you've captured them, though, so domesticated elephants can perform a host of valuable tasks, including hauling timber and large objects, transporting people over rough terrain, clearing foliage, and their dung can also be used as fertilizer. Uh, there's a few other benefits as well, just practical benefits. So typically, uh, crocodiles don't like to swim in rivers that elephants are known to frequent. Uh, You know, the brush that they clear oftentimes is, you know, great havens for snakes. So the elephant gets rid of the brush, no more snakes. Uh, There's a lot of really great practical reasons why you would want an elephant like living in your village during, you know, in ancient times and even nowadays too. But um, so they were first thought to have been domesticated in Western China around uh, 1100 BCE, uh, where they actually were so common that the area was nicknamed the Land of the Docile Elephant. So uh, now I use domesticate in air quotes because elephants aren't really domesticated in the same way that we domesticate other animals. Like they don't just like stick around, you know, like a dog or a cow. Uh, What it's kind of like for them is that they kind of just like when you have a like a, a docile kind of domesticated elephant that performs like tasks like in your village, they kind of just like hang out in the forest and then just kind of show up in the village, like when they feel like showing up, and they might work for like four to eight hours a day, and they kind of just like leave whenever they feel like leaving. You know, almost like it's kind of it's kind of adorable. Like you know, like I told my wife that, and she was just like, "It's like they have jobs." I'm like, "Yeah, like they probably do just view it as a job." I mean, they're like you know intelligent enough. I mean, they probably just like viewed it as like, "Oh, they make them a morning commute to the village to haul some logs," and they're just like, "Okay, I'm done," and just kind of leave. So, I mean. It is it is possible to enslave an elephant, uh, but it does break the bond between the elephant and its mahout. Uh, mahout is a is a term for people who train elephants, and then uh, so the elephant will eventually either two things will happen if you enslave an elephant. So eventually, the elephant will either die from stress and overwork, or it'll kill its tormentor. So. Now, just how do you train an elephant for war exactly? So, typically, older, experienced male elephants are most sought after for combat uh, because they're less likely to panic in battle. Uh, this theory has been confirmed with modern accounts of tiger hunts as well. So, uh, elephants are innately afraid of tigers. Tigers are really one of the few animals, uh, like you know, that actually can really, really harm elephants, like in their natural environment. So, but after years of experience, they can overcome this fear of tigers. So, the first step is to introduce an elephant to a tiger skin. So, uh, elephants are also encouraged to uh, step on a tiger skin as well, kind of you know, sort of, you know, make it seem like less of a threat to them. So after that, a stuffed tiger is placed in tall grass and the elephant is then trained to walk past it. Uh, then someone actually will wear the tiger skin and imitate the tiger. And uh, finally, a small cow was wrapped in the tiger's hide. An elephant is encouraged to attack it, um, you know, with the hide draped over the, uh, the, the cow and oftentimes kill it too. So uh, still, though, only a fraction of elephants can actually overcome their fear of tigers. And thus, and just not really many elephants are fit to be war elephants. Uh, so 20 to 40 years are considered the prime of an elephant's life in terms of its strength. 
but the mental fortitude only grows with age. And you really want that elephant to, the worst thing you can have in an army, and we'll see this as the series goes on, is you have an inexperienced group of elephants because all they're going to do is just panic and like more likely trample your own guys and throw everyone into confusion and chaos. I mean, an, an untrained elephant is you know worse than no elephant at all. So um, oftentimes, though, so... During certain parts of the year, uh, male bull elephants, I should also mention as well, male elephants are going to be the ones uh, most often used in a war. Female elephants don't really have the temperament for it as much. They're more docile, so they're typically used for like, you know, as like pack animals and that sort of thing. But uh, so during certain times of the year, uh, the male elephants will go into a period of musk, uh, which can actually also be you know, basically, you know, it's like when it's the same as like moose and other types of like, you know, large herbivores where they just get really, really overwhelmed with, like, testosterone, and they're incredibly angry and aggressive because that's the time that they're trying to mate. You know, that's when they're supposed to, you know, mate. So, must, though, can actually be in- induced in bull elephants uh, by use of various methods, including uh, drugs. Uh, sometimes the elephants are drugged with, like, wine or, like, you know, other types of spirits. Uh, drums, loud noises, and music. All these things can make an elephant kind of angry enough to induce the must. Um, must, sorry, musk. And then they're also trained. So, so when they're, it's kind of it's kind of hilarious when you think about it. It's like so elephants are essentially trained uh, to block spears and sword strikes with the shield. So they're actually given a shield, uh, you know, like in, you know, with their trunk because their trunks are actually very quite dexterous, and so you can actually grip a shield with like, the trunk. And they're kind of taught to kind of like block spears and sword strikes with the shield. And then uh, they're also taught to grab people and things with their trunk, you know, just like they would in battle uh, during the training period. So training takes a very long time for elephants. So in ancient India, they had several exercises to help train elephants. So in combat, these orders would be given to elephant units in battle for the use of flags or horns and trumpets. So these were, uh, there's, there's a few different commands here. I'm going to go ahead and read them off. And again, I apologize if my pronunciation is really terrible. So there's a upasthana, which is rising and jumping over obstacles. Uh, so there's a, Simvartana, which is sitting and leaping over pits, I also want to mention. So elephants can't really jump. Uh, what they can do is they basically rear up on their hind legs and lunge over obstacles. So if I'm saying jumping, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, there's Samyana, which is marching straight or zigzagging. There's a Vadhavadava, uh, which is trampling horses and soldiers. There's uh, Hastidha, which is pitting elephants against each other. There's a uh, Nagarayana, which is rushing against fort and buildings. And there's a Sam Gramika, which is just like used in open warfare. So uh, elephants are during their training, they're gradually desensitized to the sounds of battle through prolonged exposure. So they basically would like, you know, banging drums, you know, like banging swords against shields, blowing trumpets, that sort of thing. And then gradually it's going to make the elephants, you know, angry and panic at first. And then gradually they get used to it over time. So um, now, interesting note here too is that so um, so elephants and horses also naturally like don't like each other, and same with camels as well. So oftentimes, uh, if you want to be really effective in battle, you would train your if you had an elephant corps and you had like a corps of cavalry, you would train the elephants and the horses next to each other in proximity, so that you know they would be accustomed to the different scents and the sounds, so they wouldn't be panicking with one another. So. Uh, the most important element, though, of an elephant's training and performance in battle was the relationship that it has with its mahout. So mahouts were expected to know what all the flags and the signals in battle meant, as well as the uh, 
elephants, the individual elephants' various uh, idiosyncrasies. So uh, the Mahout was ex- uh, expected to make snap decisions to maintain the safety of the elephants in battle. And then the elephants and the Mahouts lived in villages together for quick mobilization and to foster relationships between the recruits and the veteran Mahouts. So these uh, these Mahouts, it wasn't so we're oftentimes paired with a single elephant and they were expected to get to know their elephant really well. It's been years with them. They would know how they worked and they would know particularly like, oh, this elephant is more afraid of this. And, you know, this elephant, you know, like maybe it has like, you know, a, a slower stride when it's going off to the right. You know, they're expected to kind of form relationships with these animals, uh, which I think is very interesting. And then so now eventually, so, you know, you know, weapons, of course, start off very primitive. Like, if it started off, you might just have a guy riding an elephant with a bow or a spear. Uh, eventually, armor began to be added to elephants, first consisting of hide and then leather. And then veterinarians also joined the elephant corps as well. And they also were given more advanced weapons, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. So, now I'm going to go into the first ever recorded use of war elephants in battle. So, the first battle is thought to have ever involved war elephants involved the Assyrians in around 800 BCE. So, it starts with the queen, uh, Semuramis, who is also known as uh, Semiramis of Assyria, and she convinced her king to let her rule the kingdom for five days. So, this is... And I just also want to make a note, just a quick little note here on ancient sources. <laughs> so, anybody who's worked with any sort of ancient sources can really tell you that when it comes to kind of recounting ancient history it can just be a real shot in the dark sometimes i mean you we were working with events that happened thousands of years ago so unless you're like working with really hard like archaeological like evidence it can be oftentimes very hard to piece together what really happened and the thing with ancient historians is is it's not like today where you know you have people just writing history for history's sake necessarily uh but oftentimes what they would work off the patronage system so you would have a historian and then he basically would be in the employ of like a general say like caesar you know and would be like told you know okay you you know you write you know like everything that i do down and everything you write about how great i am in battle basically kind of like being a cheerleader for this person and that's the the issue sometimes with that you run into with ancient historians is you're like, who are you actually really working for? I mean, I mean, bias has always, of course, been a problem in what comes to recounting history. But with the ancient sources, it's, it's you know, you just you just got to, I mean, like, you know, for instance, like, you know, in the uh, if you're reading any sort of accounts about, you know, the the um, the Roman, the conquering the Gauls and everything like Julius Caesar, you know, the guy who was conquering the Gauls is going to be like one of your main sources. So it's like take it with a grain of salt. So uh, this is. So, this, I mean, this is kind of the best information that we have. So this is what I'm working off of. Oh, and I also want to mention, I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm getting this information from a book uh, called War Elephants by John M. Kistler, who actually received his Mahout certificate from the Elephant Conservation Center in Thailand while assisting consultants in Oliver Stone's film Alexander. So this guy knows what he's talking about. He knows elephants and he knows the history. So I, I'm... And it's also just a really great read. So I go ahead. I definitely highly recommend you check it out. I really enjoyed reading it. But uh, so anyways, so uh, on the very first day, she convinced the Assyrian generals that she would be a better ruler and had them merely depose the king. So <laughs> congratulations, you played yourself, king. So it was also said that she would invite handsome soldiers into her bed and then kill them next day to preserve her image from gossip. So she's a real black widow, this, uh, this semi uh, semi So, uh, now, as you do, the, the queen then agreed to an invasion of India, uh, perhaps satisfy the, the generals who elevated her. I mean, you, these generals, you know, elevate you to this position. They're going to want 
fortune and glory lands, of course, that sort of thing, you're going to more likely do what they want to do. So, um, so Semiramat uh, sent spies into India. They came back with the news that King Stabrobates of India. Oh, I gotta say, that's a fucking badass name. You literally, you literally have stab like in your name, like as a as a king. That's gonna be pretty awesome. So, uh, so Stabrobates of India suspected Assyria would attack and was amassing an army of war elephants. So the spies reported that Stabrobates and Mahouts were capturing elephants from the forest, but this probably isn't the case because I discussed earlier it took it takes years to train you know an elephant for war, right? Like you know it can be like ten, possibly twenty years, and then so you wouldn't just grab a random elephant from the forest and like impress them in battle because that's just going to be worse off for your own soldiers. So I think what they're reporting here, what what we can speculate on, is that. They, um, so elephants, of course, are, are very big. I know, I know, shocker, right? But uh, so they're, they're very big. They take up a lot of space. They eat a lot. So oftentimes during when they, when they weren't going to war, they would kind of just hang out in the forest and it would probably be marked in some you know manner, you know, maybe painted over or something other to distinguish them between other elephants. And then when it came time to go to war, the Mahouts would go out into the forest and go ahead and gather them up, like using the you know Kungi method that we talked about earlier. So, which to me kind of, presents an interesting question of like, you know, I mean, this is like bringing elephants into battle is like, you know, it's animal cruelty, like it's abuse, like obviously, but you have to wonder, right? Like, you know, the elephants could have just ran away and, you know, you have to wonder like, did they also view like soldier, like being a, did, did they think like that their job, you know, was being like a soldier, you know, like going off into battle, you know, I would, I would I'd like to be in the kind of the mind of an elephant. I think it'd be very fascinating, but, uh, so it's kind of an idea, but, uh, so, uh, Semiramet could not actually raise a force of elephants on their own because uh, they become virtually extinct in the region due to overhunting from ivory or for ivory. So uh, Semiramet delayed the attack for two years and uh, in the meantime had her army make elephant disguises out of wood, hides, and other materials to put over top of her camels. So the night before the two armies of men in India, Stabrobates was informed of the, uh, quote, elephants by high defectors. So they went ahead and told him that all oh, shit's fake. So, uh, from far away initially, the Indian scouts were fooled by these faux elephants. Uh, one of the factors at last uh, gave them to Stabrobates and spilled the details about the plan. So, went ahead and telling them, okay, this is, they're all fake. So, uh, as the armies began to confront one another, Indian soldiers were nervous about confronting the Assyrian uh, elephants. So, Stabrobates ordered his officers to disseminate information about the Assyrian plan. Uh, moreover, Stabrobates ordered his cavalry to rush forward and destroy some of the elephant disguises to restore the army's confidence. Uh, however, though, the smell of the camels <laughs> that were actually under the elephant disguises ironically frightened off his horses and much of his cavalry was driven off. Uh, so then Stabrobates ordered his elephant corps to attack the pretenders. Uh, at first, the elephants were nervous of the contraptions, but then their confident mahounts drove them forward, and soon the real elephants started destroying the fake ones, causing the camels and their attendants to flee. So now I have actually a quote uh, from the book that I want to go ahead and read. Let's see. So the quote is, uh, The army of Semiramis withstood the onslaught of these monsters for only a short time. For these animals are of incredible ferocity, and relying on their inherent physical strength, they easily slaughtered everyone who opposed them. A prodigious killing then took place, and death took many forms, as some fell beneath their feet, and others were torn apart by their tusks, while yet others were tossed about by their trunks. 
Multitudes of corpses soon lay about in heaps, which you just have to imagine. I mean, like imagine you're a soldier, you know, in ancient Assyria and the largest, you know, you're from like a small rural village. The largest animal you've seen is like a cow. And then suddenly you're faced with like a 10 foot tall elephant, um, you know, just massive tusks and a trunk and they're incredibly loud. It must have just been absolutely terrifying to witness. So Stabrybidi's army was renewed its confidence, and so they drove uh, uh, Semiramet's army from the field and gained an easy victory. Uh, war elephants also played a hand of death of Cyrus the Great of Persia as he faced off against uh, Masagete of India. In later, cent- uh, in later centuries, actually, after this battle, elephants were viewed as demonic in the Persian Zoroastrian religious traditions, which really shows that they like really took this whole battle to heart. And I'm going to actually read another quote about that particular battle because I think it's a really good quote. So, the quote is, uh, it's from the book. So, as the Persian forces crossed a river with King Cyrus and his cavalry in the front, uh, the Masagete attacked. The Asian elephants terrified the Persian cavalry and the horse of Cyrus reared up and threw him. Here Cyrus received a deadly wound, but the accounts vary. The Persian version says that the king was carried from the battlefield, but his men won the victory, and then Cyrus died of his wounds. Other sources say that Cyrus perished immediately after falling from his horse, and that Queen Jamiris took his head and dipped it in gore, saying, quote, I give thee thy fill of blood. <laughs> you gotta love the, 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 the fucking the, the drama of these ancient sources, man. Like, they know how to weave a narrative, I, t- I tell you. But, uh... So, uh, war elephants were also used in China a few times, but not for very long as the population in China uh, started increasing, which made it harder to keep the Chinese supplied with elephants for their armies. So, they, you know, the people competed with the elephants and the people won. So, now I'm going to talk a little bit about some innovation in kind of the sphere of, you know, war elephanteering, if you will. So, India was a nucleus of innovation when it came to war elephants. They had the biggest population of Asian elephants. And uh, so... Yeah, they, there was a lot of innovation going on there. So plate armor uh, was added to the elephant's fore, a head and upper trunk, and composite armor was also added, eventually made of cloth that had a middle pieces sewn into it, kind of like, you know, like, picture kind of like a fish scale kind of like type thing. So um, mahouts were also given shields, bronze helmets, and javelins. Uh, they're also given ankuses, which is basically kind of like a long stick with a hook attached to the very end. Uh, which helped signal commands and how its voice could not be heard in battle. So they would tap it on uh, certain areas, like, you know, the ears and, like, the different shoulders of the elephant to give different commands to them. Uh, wooden boxes called howdas were also added to the backs of elephants, which would carry up to four men, uh, adding to the elephant's firepower in battle. So you'd have a guy who might, you know, throw javelins. You'd have a guy who might shoot, you know, like, you know, fire off a bow. And then you might have a guy with a spear, you know. So you got, you know, quite a bit of a, uh, kind of, almost like kind of, forming the elephants to kind of these mobile strong points, which is just a really neat concept. Um, and the Indians also added the innovation of a signal elephant, whose sole job it was to signal and lead other groups of elephants via drums and signal flags as well. And now I'm going to go ahead and talk about Alexander the Great. So the very first Western army to encounter war elephants was Alexander the Great at Battle of Guagamala in 331 BCE. So Darius had 15 war elephants at his army center with 100 scythe chariots on each side. So the plan was for the elephants to charge and they were unencumbered by towers or howdahs uh, so that, you know, they would be faster. And then the goal was to basically charge them into the Macedonian phalanxes in order to break them up. And they also employed tusk swords as well, which is basically like they would kind of like, you know, form, they would make these swords, like these big blades, 
and kind of talk about a metal jacket that they would basically would fit over the tusk of elephant, which which is just so fucking badass. Like, uh, that's so cool. But uh, again, not not good to use elephants in battle. Don't do that. But tusk swords are pretty cool. So uh, this is the first time the great ever saw elephants in battle. So uh, he actually hesitated, which he doesn't something uh, was not something Alexander the Great is typically known for. He's known for very quick acting, very decisive action. So seeing these elephants actually caused him to withdraw his army back to camp to rethink his strategy. So Alexander decided to attack the next morning using a diamond uh, formation that would have seen his forces not face the oncoming elephant charge. Uh, however, on that morning, the elephants were nowhere to be seen. So historians have debated over and over why the elephants were not there for decades. Initially, it was thought that chariots might have scared them off. Uh, the Indian, or I'm sorry, the Persian uh, war chariots. But this is unlikely as Indian armies used chariots at this time. And thus the elephants would have been accustomed to them. Like if they had been training with them and around them, they wouldn't have been afraid of them. So, what more likely what really happened was that so uh, when Alexander the Great withdrew his army, this he just kind of just left Darius's army to just kind of sit out there, you know, out in the hot sun, you know, waiting for him to act. So uh, the elephants over time would have become irritable and stressed after standing for hours in the hot plains of Iraq. Uh, standing in battle line, they're also unable to uh, leave one of the stress by putting their trunks in each other's mouth. That's something elephants will do to kind of like help soothe other elephants as they'll stick their trunk in the elephant's mouth. And then uh, combine this with the interruption of their normal routine. In fact, they drank wine before battle, which would have made them belligerent, confused, and noisy. And then uh, all the noise and chaos uh, spooked the horses. And so uh, Darius and the elephants away, lest this battle line be in danger of collapse. So uh, they never did participate in the Battle of Guagamala. The end result was that Alexander defeated Darius, and he actually captured elephants in the Persian army's baggage train. So the mounts and elephants were offered positions in Alexander's army, and then uh, Alexander's next major engagement against elephants would be uh, famously the Battle of Hydaspes in June of 326 BCE. So in this battle, Alexander faced off against King Porus, who had 200 elephants in his army. Porus was set up on the other side of the Hidaspes River, keeping Alexander from crossing. So fording the river would be difficult enough, but once he was across, his horses wouldn't be able to really attack the elephants effectively because they were afraid of them. Again, you know, because they weren't trained with them. So time wasn't on Alexander's side either, as Porus had sent for reinforcements, and if he waited until July, the monsoon rains would arrive, making a river crossing virtually impossible. So Alexander had carpenters build boats, 16 miles to the east at a shallow point in the river, where a thick forest cover meant his troops would be hidden from Porus's scouts. On a very rainy night as the monsoon began, Alexander stealthily moved 5,000 cavalry and 10,000 infantry to the east, while his elephants the rest of his army under General Craterus stayed behind. He even left behind a body double, actually, in his armor to make the enemy unaware of his absence. It's kind of the brilliance of Alexander. So uh, as the river rose and rocked violently, Alexander moved his army to the other side of the Hidaspes, the crossing point. Uh, the next morning, Porus's scouts spied Alexander's men. So Alexander, uh, Alexander's maneuver actually put Porus in a pretty tight spot. So if he moved to face Alexander, he'd be outflanked by General Craterus once he crossed the river. If he stayed put, they would be outflanked by Alexander. So uh, Porus responded by sending his cavalry and 120 war elephants commanded by his son to lay Alexander's advance while Porus came up with a plan for Craterus's troops across the river. And if I didn't mention Kratos was one of um, Alexander's kind of Soviet generals that worked with them. So um, 
Luckily for Alexander, Porus' son attacked, and the muddy ground for the previous night's reign uh, became a quagmire for their chariots, and the Indian cavalry was routed uh, with Porus' son being killed in, in, the, uh, in the ensuing chaos. So Porus then divided his remaining army, taking two-thirds of it to stop Alexander, and leaving the rest to do with Craterus. So the two kings met on muddy, level ground flanked by jungle, which managed to conceal Alexander's cavalry. Porus had roughly around 20,000, I'm sorry, 25,000 men, while Alexander had 15,000. Now, most of the elephants carried howdahs that held javelin throws and archers, and the elephants were also armored as well. These would have been the elephants in Porus's forces. So Alexander presented most of his cavalry on one side, causing Porus to mass all of his cavalry on that side to face Alexander. But like we discussed earlier, in reality, Alexander had a unit of cavalry hidden in the jungle who managed to flank Porus's cavalry, causing them to mash into a line of infantry and elephants, sowing chaos in Porus's ranks. So Porus ordered his elephant corps to advance to drive away the Macedonian horsemen, and then Alexander also had his cavalry attack the Indians' flank, leaving his infantry alone to face the elephants. So I'm going to go ahead and read another quote from page 35 of this book. So... Uh, quote begins as the elephants applying to good use their prodigious side of strength killed some of the enemy by trampling them under their feet and crushing their armor and their bones while others they inflicted a terrible death for the first lifted them aloft for their trunks which that twined around their bodies and then dashed them down with a great violence to the ground many others they deprived in a moment of life by goring them through and through with their tusks such so as absolute carnage here on the battlefield so Alexander ordered his javelin throwers to aim for the eyes of the elephants and for the mounts, and also hamstrung the elephants using their axes and Copus's swords, which Copus is like, you know, a curved sword that Alexander the Great's men used. So uh, gradually, Alexander's cavalry combined with the arrival of Craterus surrounded Porus's army until many were killed in close, brutal hand-to-hand fighting. So I'm going to read another quote. So this one goes as, Quote, the elephants were now crowded to a narrow space, and their own sides were as much damaged by them as the enemy. And trodden down in their turnings and jostlings, most of the drivers of the elephants had been shot down. Some of the elephants had been wounded, others were weary, and had lost their drivers. They no longer kept their separate formation in the battle, but, as if maddened by suffering, attacked friends and foes alike, and in all sorts of ways kept pushing, trampling, and destroying. As the beasts wearied and no longer made vigorous charges, but merely trumpeted, and gradually retired like ships backing water. So this is the downside of having elephants in battle, is that when they end up panicking and becoming too stressed, then there's much a liability to your own forces as they are to enemy forces. So uh, Plutarch attests that Porus's elephant protected the king until the end. I'm going to read another quote here. So um, during the whole battle, many singular proofs of sagacity and of particular care for the king whom as soon as he was strong and in condition to fight, he defended with great courage, repelling those who set upon him. And as soon as he perceived him overpowering, overpowered with his numerous runes and multitude of darts that were thrown at him, to prevent his falling off, he softly knelt down and began to draw out the darts with his proboscis. So it's discuss, discussing how Porus's elephant went ahead and was trying to protect him to the very end. I mean, it's it's obviously we have no way of you know verifying if this is actually true or not. Although it is known that Mahouts can often, you know, have very, very uh, close relationships with their elephants. You know, again, there's no way we can verify this is true or not. So uh, Alexander admired Porus for fighting so bravely and he actually wished to spare his life. So with his army surrounded, 
horse surrendered and Alexander made him the new regent of his uh, domain in India. Uh, Alexander also honored poor horse's elephants, naming him Ajax, which is a very odd name for an elephant. I'm not sure what the Greek, if it means something different in ancient Greek, but nah, I, I, I can't just, I can't not think of the soap. That's just my modern brain going into it. But um, good on you, Ajax. So uh, out of Porus's 200 elephants, eight of them died in the battle and the rest were captured. Uh, many others were likely euthanized, uh, unfortunately, due to their wounds being fatal. Uh, later on, Indians in that region of India were said to worship elephants who were descended from Ajax, honoring them with uh, offerings of myrrh and draping garlands around their necks and, you know, painting them and everything, kind of just gradually making a fuss over them, you know, at certain periods of the year. So now a lot of historians wonder, what does Agnes and the Great really think about elephants? So a lot of them will point to this quote here. And the quote reads, it's actually from uh, historian Quintus Curtius. Um, and this is what he said. Uh, so this is, this is what, according to, according to Quintus Curtius, this is something that Alexander said about elephants after the Battle of Hedaspes. Uh, quote, I've always uh, so little esteemed them, and when I have plenty of them, I would never use them, knowing very well that they are more dangerous to such uh, as employ them, or to such as employ them, than to their enemies. So basically saying that, you know, I've never used them. I think they're more dangerous to the soldiers, you know, that you're working with and as they are to the enemies. Thing was that this quote is most likely bullshit. <laughs> so uh, I say that because this quote, uh, this is the first time this quote ever shows up. And it was also written, uh, you know, Quintus Curtius lived in the time of Emperor Claudius, which is a full 400 years after Alexander died. Uh, this is the very first time this shows up. and It doesn't show up in any earlier sources such as Ptolemy, who would have been around at that time. Uh, Pliny, who actually was alive when Alexander was around, where the Alexander made every effort to acquire elephants on his march towards India, even going so far as to pay local uh, elephant hunters to capture them. Uh, now, Alexander also had 100 elephants of his own when he faced Porus at Hedaspes. So but he had about you know half as many elephants as Porus had, which you know like begs the question, if he didn't value them, then why did he have 100 elephants with him? So most likely, Alexander didn't use them for a number of reasons. For one, his elephant corps was uh, outnumbered significantly, and they also were very less, much less experienced, and the elephants are most likely not yet accustomed to fighting alongside horses. Uh, most importantly, though, it was just too difficult logistically to get them across the river. The river was too swollen, if they did, uh, the river was too swollen, and even if they did build a raft that could carry the elephants, um, they would have to do so under enemy fire. So that is crossing the river. Moreover, if the elephants took part in the surprise uh, night flanking maneuver, Porus would have noticed 130 noisy elephants leaving his camp. So this is supposed to be like, you know, a quiet stealth maneuver. More than likely, Porus is going to notice like over 100 elephants, like, you know, just, you know, moving across the river. I'm going to read another quote here. So um, this is actually from military historian W.W. Tarn. And he wrote about the Battle of Hedaspes, and he wrote, uh, quote, this is, uh, this is quite unlike Alexander's other battles. As untrained horses will not face elephants, he was unable to himself help his army beyond defeating Porus's cavalry and preventing them from interfering. In most of his battles, he saved his men all he could by using his brains. But up against 200 uh, elephants of Porus, he had no choice. All he could do was to put some of his best infantry in line and leave it to them. They did defeat the elephants, but it was evidently a fearful struggle. The men were never quite the same again. 
So uh, Alexander's men after the Battle of Daspies were basically traumatized. Uh, they had you know, been across the entire known world at that point and had just faced 200 angry elephants, which they had never done before. Remember, they weren't president of Guacamole in battle. So they basically, it was, they just were feeling terrible about the whole situation. So um, after the battle, a uh, writer actually sought to flatter Alexander by writing about Alexander killing an elephant with a single javelin throw during the battle. And then Alexander threatened him for stupidity and threw his writings into the river. <laughs> so this clearly says that Alexander's like, bitch, you don't know shit. Like, you're just going to write in this, like, my history about me and say, like, oh, I killed an elephant with a single javelin throw. Like, no, you weren't there. Like, go fuck off. I'm going to throw your writings into a river. So 